You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. Psalm 51, it's one of seven psalms which are commonly referred to as the penitential psalms. It's a subcategory of the psalms of individual lament in that they specifically express sorrow, regret, and remorse for sin. This particular psalm, many of you have read it probably numerous times, arguably the most well-known of the penitential psalms. In the words of one writer, Quote, the most powerful confession of sin in the Psalter, in this great hymn book of the Old Testament. The superscription of Psalm 51 reading, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Story of David and Bathsheba, one of the, the more familiar Old Testament stories captured in the book of 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter of which begins with these words. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and, and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. And she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. You can imagine David's shock and dismay in receiving the news that Bathsheba, as our kids like to say, had a baby in her belly, prompting David to attempt to cover up his sin and bringing Bathsheba's husband Uriah home from battle with the hopes that Uriah, by David's prompting, would have his own intimate moment with his wife and would be deceived along with the rest of the community into thinking that the baby was his own. Problem for David being that Uriah didn't take the bait. He refused to do as David encouraged him to do, believing it would be unfair to all the other men off in battle who couldn't be with their wives in the midst of their deployment. So that David decided in a second effort to cover up his sin, to send Uriah back to battle, strategically assigning him to the most dangerous of all the war zones, essentially arranging Uriah's murder so that he, David, could quickly marry Bathsheba as you can imagine, displeased the Lord so that we're told in the very next chapter of 2 Samuel, and the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. And he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and he, it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling, the rich man was, to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. It's quite the injustice, right? Taking what belongs to another man. Then David's anger, we're told, was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's response, shame on the man who would take what belongs to another man. It's heartless, selfish, it's deserving of death. The very next verse, Nathan said to David, you are the man. It's you, David. You, you're the one who's heartlessly and selfishly taken what belongs to another man. Not only his bride, but his life. You're the one deserving of death, David. Right? David was quick to anger with respect to someone else's sin, all the while desensitized to the very same sin in his own heart. And yet, in the wake of Nathan's rebuke, David turned to God in repentance, brought to his knees, declaring, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51 capturing in a song, in lyrical form, an expanded version of that cry from 2 Samuel. David's deep awareness of his sin and his desperate need for God's restoring mercy and grace. This psalm, an expression of both personal concern and communal concern for the well-being of God's people. So that as we pick up in verse 1, this song begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David begins this psalm with an appeal for mercy without which a sinner in need of divine forgiveness has no hope, especially one guilty of adultery and murder as those particular sins in the law of Moses promise death. The threefold language of mercy, steadfast love, and abundant mercy in verse one, giving fullest, deepest expression to God's goodness and grace. Mercy referring to God's unmerited favor toward undeserving sinners. Steadfast love referring to his covenant loyalty and faithfulness. Abundant mercy meaning in the original Hebrew, a deep-seated pity or compassion. The threefold language of transgressions, iniquity, and sin giving fullest, deepest expression to David's sinfulness and moral corruption. Transgressions, a, a word carrying with it the idea of willful rebellion. Iniquity, a deviation from the, the straight path for paths of crookedness. Sin, meaning in the original Hebrew, and aiming at a target and missing the mark. The threefold language of blotting out, washing, and cleansing, and giving fullest, deepest expression to David's need for God to do what only God can do pleading with the Lord to blot out his transgressions, blot out meaning to erase from the book, so to speak, to that God would wash him thoroughly from his iniquity, describing himself, David does, using such language as something akin to a dirty garment. The third, a cry for God to cleanse him from his sin, the, the, the language carrying with it the imagery of a precious metal being purified of imperfections enabling one to enter the worship of the Lord again, 
in, in good standing with God. He goes on in verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, Lord, and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Right here, David expands upon the, the opening lyrics of this incredible song, declaring not only a, a knowledge or awareness of his sin, but something too of an inescapability, right? My sin is ever before me, unable to shake it from my mind, staring back at me as in a mirror. No blame shifting like our first parents in the garden, no minimizing or defending Concerned not just with the consequences of his sin as is the only concern of many of us oftentimes when it comes to our sin, if we're honest. But more deeply concerned in this moment, David, is with having sinned against a, a perfect, righteous, holy God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And some might ask, what, what about the woman whose marriage David defiled? What about the man whose murder he arranged? I mean, we can, according to the Apostle Paul, sin against ourselves, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, as well as sin against our image-bearing neighbor. What David declares here is not so much that he's without guilt on a human level, but rather that his sin is ultimately and most tragically against God himself. As the Lord, King of all creation, seated on the, the throne of heaven, our sin, to use the language of many scholars, an act of treason. The king of creation too, righteous judge, verse four, never to be disbarred, justified in his words, blameless in his judgment, righteous, whatever the verdict upon David or any sinner for that matter might be. God, a holy God, David and we all sinful people. David's words here, uh, not unlike the, the thief on the cross who died next to Jesus in acknowledging both his own sinfulness and God's blamelessness. And with that, a plea for mercy. Right? David too, recognizing his sin, not just to be ever before him, but, but ever behind him, tracing back to the, the day of his conception. Because of Adam's fall, a part of the very nature with which he was born, see Romans 5. Right? David needing not just to be cleansed from the stain of specific sinful thoughts and actions, but to be rescued from the very sin nature with which he was born. In the lyrics of the great Bob Dylan, I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone cold dead as I stepped out of the womb. Right, David desperate for a transforming work from the inside out. As God delights, verse six, in truth in the inward being and imparts true wisdom in the secret heart or inmost place. David continues, verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here, David continues to pray for cleansing using priestly language associated with purification in the Old Testament. Hyssop, a a plant shaped in such a way that, that it could be used as a sort of brush associated with the story of the Exodus used in the spreading of blood of the Passover lamb on the the lintel and and doorposts of the Israelite households in Egypt before the 10th and final plague, the death of the firstborn. Two used in the uh, ceremonial cleansing of, of lepers in David's day and homes filled with leprous disease. David essentially here capturing a a blood-sprinkling, sacrificial, cleansing work of God, one that, though his sins like scarlet, would make him whiter than snow. Asking again, verse 9, that that God would blot out his iniquities, erasing them from the book, that that God would hide his face, not from David himself, that would be tragic, but, but from his sins. And with God's cleansing of restored joy, As David doesn't simply want forgiveness in this moment, but more than that, to be restored, to be renewed. His bones, verse 8, symbolically speaking, have been broken. The Lord having brought him in his sin to a place of brokenness. Here asking the Lord to bring gladness out of the the brokenness. To use the imagery to make these broken bones dance for joy. To restore to David the joy of God's salvation. Verse 12. The gracious and glorious gifts of a clean heart and a willing spirit. Created, renewed, and upheld. Not by David, but by the Lord himself. Create in me. Those words, nothing less than David's cry for a miracle. Verse 10. As the word create, it's reserved in the Old Testament for the creative activity of God alone something that only the God of creation can do, something from the inside out. Again, David using the language of heart and spirit, asking the Lord not take, that he not take the Holy Spirit from him as he had done with Saul, but that he would renew a right spirit within David, a willing spirit, verse 12, a spirit desirous to obey God rather than sin, to walk in God-glorifying, joy-maximizing obedience. Notice that that David doesn't mention any specific sinful actions, but rather gets underneath those check engine lights, recognizing that that underneath every sinful act is the need for the expulsive power of a new affection. David declares, create in me a clean heart, O God, awaken in the deepest parts of me the expulsive power of, of a new affection. Then, verse 13 Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. As in the, the beginning of this psalm, the threefold language of teaching, singing, and declaring in these verses, giving fullest, deepest expression to, 
the outworking of God's forgiveness and restoration. For one, a ministry born out of the ashes of David's ruin. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, verse 13, and sinners will return to you. David, a, a restored sinner, calling other sinners to faith and repentance. I mean, the, the inscripturation of this very psalm, that it, that it sits within the canon of scripture, is an answer to David's prayer. Right? These very words have, have led countless sinners to return to the Lord. I mean, that, that we could be forgiven sinners that we are is wonder enough. Wonder upon wonders that we could be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Right? David envisions a ministry born out of the ashes of his ruin. A ministry not without a song, verse 14, one that sings aloud of God's righteousness. A ministry not without a declaration, verse 15, a heralding of God's praises to all within earshot. I'm reminded this past week when we were on vacation. If you go to the beach now, you know this. Every other tent has its own Bluetooth speaker and everybody has their own playlist. And for most people, it's not just for them in their tent, it's for all the other tents around them that they're trying to evangelize to their playlist. This song isn't just David's song, it's one that must be heralded to all the surrounding tents, so to speak. Deliverance from the guilt of bloodshed, opening David's mouth to the joyful praise of God's glorious grace. A God who takes no delight in empty religious ritual, verse 16. David declaring not that the sacrificial system was without its place as the closing lyrics of this very psalm speak of God's delight in sacrifices and offerings. Rather, declaring here that those things are worthless if not matched by an inward brokenness, humility, and contrition. Again, God delights in truth in the inward being, verse 6. A God who imparts true wisdom in the secret heart or inmost place. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. A God who blesses those who come to him poor in spirit. Those who would declare, my pockets are empty and I'm desperate for your mercy. I'm bankrupt without you, Lord. Closes out this, this great song. Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The closing lyrics of this psalm expressing concern for Zion. Again, this psalm uh, uh, an expression of both personal concern and communal concern for the well-being of God's people. Some believing these words, verses 18 and 19, to be a, a later addition by those exiled into Babylonian captivity in the wake of their covenant rebellion, having here made David's confession and cry their, their own, no way to offer sacrifices in Babylon. The temple's been destroyed even if we were in Jerusalem. Here appealing to God's mercy which if it is a later edition, it would have been a prayer that was answered in the days of Nehemiah when the, the walls were rebuilt. People joyfully able once again to offer sacrifices to the Lord in the rebuilding of the temple. Others believing these words to be 
original to David as much as any other words that make up this psalm, asking the Lord and restoring him personally to do good to Israel corporately. David's plea that the Lord build up the walls of Jerusalem, not literal, so to speak, but, but simply a, a cry for God to protect the city against her, her enemies. God's delight, once again, in sacrifices and offerings, a sign that the nation had followed suit. They had followed David in contrition and repentance. After all, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. There are oftentimes corporate consequences to individual sin. Either way, this psalm ending with a cry for goodness and mercy, both individually and corporately, which leads me to a question that we're seeking to answer each and every week of this series, namely, how does this psalm point to, to Jesus? Well, Psalm 51 presents us with uh, the language and imagery associated with at least two gloriously beautiful facets of the gospel. One having to do with our guilt, the other with defilement and shame. That, that this very psalm, think about this, that this very psalm finds itself in the canon of scripture, that presents us with something of a dilemma. I mean, David stands guilty of adultery and murder, both of those sins according to the law of Moses, promising death. And yet here David is alive and breathing, declaring the Lord to be both merciful, verse one, and just, verse four. Justice would say that David should die, mercy declaring that David would live. David declaring before Nathan the prophet, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan immediately responding with, and I quote, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. What? I mean, that brings up a critical question, namely, how does God's mercy and forgiveness not call into question his righteous reputation? One would think that the extension of pardon to a death-deserving sinner would cheapen perfect justice. The Lord, just another corrupt judge willing to sweep the most heinous of crimes under the rug. Is there any possible way to solve this dilemma? Brings me to one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. Paul's words in Romans 3, verses 23 through 26. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why did God do this? This was to show, this putting forth of Jesus as a bearer of wrath on behalf of wrath-deserving sinners, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, including David's. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How does God's mercy and forgiveness not call into question his righteous reputation? What, what is the means by which God can simultaneously forgive sinners and vindicate his righteousness? Answer, the cross. The cross of Christ is the only way that God can forgive sinners without sacrificing his justice on the altar of his mercy. The cross of Jesus Christ, it's where the mercy and justice of God collide. 
as God's righteous reputation is vindicated in punishing Jesus for our sin, bearing the judgment that should have fallen on us. In our place, condemned he stood, sealing our pardon with his blood. The perfect covenant-keeping, sinless Christ, dying in the place of imperfect, covenant-breaking sinners, sinners like you and me, sinners like David, who was, by the way, justified and pardoned the same way any of us are, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God sweeps no sin under the rug. God looked beyond the days of David to the death of Christ, who would die in David's stead, by faith in the, in the promised coming Messiah and his redemptive work, God in perfect justice and righteousness passing over David's sin. His sins reckoned as Christ's sins. Christ's righteousness reckoned as David's righteousness. That Jesus is the means by which God can simultaneously punish sin and forgive sinners. He died so that God might be vindicated and glorified and he died so that we might be justified, pardoned, forgiven, redeemed. But that's not all. <laughs> Psalm 51, it, it points us not only to the hope of the gospel as it pertains to our guilt problem, but too as it pertains to our defilement and shame problem. David's plea, not only for God's forgiveness, but for God's cleansing and washing the blotting out of his transgressions, the hiding of God's face from David's sins. This is the language of what theologians refer to as the doctrine of expiation, the cleansing from the stain of sin on our soul. One of the clearest Old Testament pictures being the, the day of atonement uh, when two goats without blemish or defect were, were chosen. The first goat sacrificed as a, a sin offering a foreshadowing of Jesus' wrath-bearing work on the cross. The second goat then taken by the high priest who would lay hands on the, the head of the live animal while confessing the sins of the people, symbolizing the transfer of the sins of the people onto the animal, followed by the high priest sending of the animal off into the wilderness where it would disappear out of sight and eventually die. A symbol of not only the carrying away, but also the obliteration of the sins of God's people. It's where we get the origin of the concept of a scapegoat. The sins of the people taken far away, put on another, to the dirtiness and shame associated with those sins. The stain of sin and its impurity removed from God's sight. To use the language of Psalm 51 as we see it elsewhere in Scripture, Isaiah 43, 25, I, God, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The famous Isaiah 118 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That just as Jesus is the means by which God can simultaneously punish sin and forgive sinners, so too Jesus is the means by which our sin and our shame have been taken away. Our sins not taken to the wilderness, but to the cross 
where Jesus bore the stain of our sins so that our sin-stained souls might be made clean. In the words of the great hymn writer Isaac Watts, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain, but Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. In his blood, establishing a new covenant with the promise of that which David hoped for. More than forgiveness, God's restoration, God's renewal. Isaiah, or excuse me, Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This too, ultimately accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus. The the new creations, as Paul says, that we are in Christ. Complete cleansing from sin comes with both forgiveness and renewal in Christ. We find both. Jesus, the the full expression of God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. So that the invitation this morning, whether for the the first time or the 10,000th time or somewhere in between, is to come to the Lord humble and contrite, declaring our desperate need for the, the cleansing and renewing work that only he can do. Trusting him, the the God of creation, whose creative activity brings life where there was once death. That's what God does. That's what our God does. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.